This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcast every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 on KUCI, 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In 1973, White House counsel John Dean told then-President Richard Nixon that the web of lies surrounding the Watergate scandal had formed a cancer on the presidency. When Dean went public about that conversation, the Nixon White House smeared him as a liar. Fortunately, the conversation had been taped, Dean was vindicated, and Nixon resigned. Now, more than 30 years later, Dean, in his latest book, Worse Than Watergate, makes the case that the crimes of President Bush are worse than Nixon's. In fact, they're grounds for impeachment. Bush and Cheney's secretive administration, according to Dean, is not merely a preferred system of management, but an obsessive strategy meant to conceal a deeply troubling agenda of corporate favoritism, a policy of dramatic growth in unchecked power for the executive branch that puts at risk the lives of American citizens, civil liberties, and the Constitution. John Dean, welcome to Weekly Signals. It's a pleasure. How are you doing today? Terrific. Very good. Now, in your book, Worse Than Watergate, it was first published in 2004, updated in 2005 with a paperback edition after uh, Bush's re-election. Has anything about this administration since then made the Worse Than Watergate title even more appropriate to you? <laughs> they just continue adding. I could keep adding chapters. Yeah. Uh, the underlying notion that I had when I first started the book was that secrecy is always dangerous. And we were seeing excessive secrecy, and no one else was writing about it. So I decided, you know, I know where this can lead. I've seen it happen before from the inside. I understand how it can happen. And somebody needs to talk about it. And that's where it started. And then I realized that this secrecy was dangerous and far different than Watergate in that nobody died during Watergate. Mm -hmm. uh, people were dying as a result of the, the secret policies. Well, in, in what ways is the Bush-Cheney administration more secretive? Uh, is there any uh, policy in place? There, there's everything from a governing style to, uh, indeed, policies. They have, for example, issued executive orders. They have, even before 9-11, they had upped the classification rate. Uh, they had refused to discuss publicly things that traditionally were discussed publicly. Uh, they had repealed... Uh, an existing law, if you will, by executive interpretation. Uh, it was just one thing after another. And uh, uh, they, you know, the fact that this president holds no press conferences, uh, the vice president will occasionally go out to very favorable uh, journalists. Uh, seldom does he go to a hostile territory, you might say. And so they're, you know, it, it's, it's, just, uh, it's just a complete... Uh, slam the door, pull the shades, and we'll run it the way we want to and not tell anybody. And, and this is Mike. Uh, and that's uh, what they're – basically, aren't they saying, trust us? They, Isn't that their policy? I mean, it, when you distill it down to its essence, it's saying, trust us, we'll, we'll take care of everything? That's, that is exactly uh, the approach that the president takes. I, I think with Cheney, it runs deeper. Mm -hmm. I think he somehow uh, has his entire psyche – uh, tied up with with trying to expand presidential power because he was sitting uh, as the White House chief of staff during the Ford administration 
when the Congress understandably uh, exercised its oversight powers and started trimming back the imperial presidency because of its dangers. Yeah. You, you answered, you, you began to answer a question I was going to ask you, uh, which was, um, did 9-11 change everything in terms of how this administration um, operates? But then I was think, recalling Cheney's secret meetings with the oil executives, which we've never really been able to find out enough about. So I guess they were on this path, but how, if, if in any way, did 9-11 affect the way they, they uh, govern? Well, of the first, about the first two weeks after 9-11, I think that this presidency was at its best. Uh, when, when Bush was trying to pull together the country, trying to grasp this, uh, the enormity of what had happened uh, and, and deal with it, but then they, the light bulb went off with somebody that saw this as an enormous political opportunity. Now, whether this was the neocons who had long been hoping for a Pearl Harbor-type event mm-hmm. or whether it was Bush himself and his just his own political instincts, everything changed. Yeah. And they began exploiting 9-11 and have never stopped. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have used terrorism, as a, as a, uh, in a sense, as a way to keep fears high uh, because polling shows that for some reason that baffles me, uh, Republicans are perceived as better able to fight terrorism than Democrats. Yeah. Uh, I, as I say I don't get it. I don't understand it. Uh, uh, we've been through several world wars with with uh, uh, Democrats in the White House, and but, uh, the, but this is a theme that the Republicans have been hammering on since the Cold War started. Isn't it that the Democrats are somehow inadequate in dealing with the communism, the spread of communism, and now terrorism? Isn't that well? I, you know, if you look at where the Cold War policy started, they didn't really. They started in in the Truman administration. Yeah. Uh, that's when containment was laid down as a policy. Uh, it seems to me that it was the wiser course, or. Uh, we might have mutually destroyed ourselves by now no, I, had we had the kind of cowboy attitude that's in there now. Yeah. No, I and I agree with what you're saying. It's just that for whatever reason, uh, the general public seems to buy off. In fact, I did read recently where Rove was, uh, you know, exhorting the troops, the Republicans who are obviously getting very skittish about all the scandals and the, and the inadequate management by the federal government of Katrina and all the rest of it, saying, you know, keep your powder dry because we're always, it's, it's a post-9-11 world and we can, we can win in a post-9-11 world because this is the drum we're going to beat. And that it, for what, I don't know why I agree with you, but it seems to be a political winner for them. So I, I, I just, it baffles me also. Um, I was going to uh, move to the, uh, to the Dubai port deal. Oh, yeah. And is, do you think this is uh, the secrecy uh, backfiring on them? It could well be. Mm-hmm. Uh, finally, the Congress uh, – well, let me give you – I was just, in fact, talking with somebody about this, that uh, I, hadn't, I had missed the Larry King show uh, when Woodward and Bernstein appeared last week or the week before. I guess it was mm-hmm. last week. Uh, and Bernstein had said – and I, this was just reported to me, that, that he had always thought maybe my worse than Watergate book was hyperbole. And he said, I am absolutely convinced it is not now uh, that I had spotted the problem early and had written about it. <coughs> Woodward, uh, and when the book first came out, sort of poo-pooed it, said, oh, no, no, there's no secrecy. Well, he's now giving speeches around the country that, indeed, this, we have a 
really deep problem with the secrecy of this presidency. And here's the man who has more access than anybody else. Yeah. Uh, so uh, uh, the light bulb has gone off many places. Now, I diverted from your question there, which was, again... About, oh, the, about the, Dubai, the... the, uh, the oh, the port, Dubai, the, the, right. Yeah, the port. Right. I got, went way off from Dubai. <laughs> no, that's all right. It, <laughs> uh, <laughs> all dovetails there. <laughs> uh, the, the fact that uh, the media and the Congress now understand the depth of secrecy, and they're seeing this kind of policy that is, you know, no one knows how well or ill it has been staffed out, and they're just trying to jam it through, has finally said, wait a minute, this is just not the way we want to proceed, which is lovely. I, you know, I don't know the answers from a, from a policy standpoint, whether this is a, a good or, or bad decision. We don't have enough information yet. The, the, the information that's coming out is very troubling that apparently uh, uh, there are lots of problems that were not addressed by the review board who passed on this. And, of course, uh, it's questionable, you know, until the president read about it, he didn't even know about it, and until it blew up in his face. Uh, but that's pretty much the way this presidency operates. Everything is delegated pretty far down the staff level for decision-making. Well, I, w- I want to uh, – I don't know. And again, I'm sort of – I've gone back and forth on after initially hearing about it, and is this xenophobic for us, and, and going – sort of jumping around as to where, where this thing – but we obviously don't know all- enough about it yet, and I guess over the next couple of days we'll find out more. Um, but this does speak uh, to a, a broader issue of – as you are talking about, it's sort of within the government itself. Um, in your book, you talk about – Dick Cheney uh, a fair amount, and you're talking about uh, his role in this administration, just how much power he does have, and of course the incidents surrounding 9/11. I want you to talk a little bit about that, if you could, and also a little bit about this Shadow National Security Council that that Cheney uh, heads up. It's one of the most. Well, go ahead and explain a little bit. Well, about it, it. starting with the Shadow NSC, which I think is not as strong as it was during the Scooter Libby days, now that his chief, former chief of staff is under indictment and had to leave the White House. It was Libby who really was, was uh, pretty much in charge of that operation and was driving it. Uh, he knows the field, he knows the area, he knew the boss, and they really set up a, uh, a national security operation that during the first term of the presidency overshadowed Condoleezza Rice's National Security Council, the statutory National Security Council, because Cheney uh, knew all the levers and mm-hmm. buttons uh, that, that needed to be pushed or pulled uh, to get things done in Washington, uh, and they were much more experienced in many ways and were driving the policy. Now, that, that's been confirmed, uh, the, the, the information I... I, I had off-the-record sources. I don't like to use them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't like to quote them, but they led me as to where I should be looking because I have people who are inside this administration I know yeah. pretty well, and, and many of them are, are troubled by what's going on. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the things that they were quite startled with, that uh, as they referred to them in the White House, the people across the street uh, are, are running a lot of the national security decisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that was the, the reference across the street yeah. is, a, is across in the executive office building from the White House, uh, which yeah. is on the same so property as y- the White House. Yeah, so we, so we have a situation where Cheney has been um, in very deeply involved in, in making very important decisions on national security. One of the reasons Cheney may demand secrecy is 
he's not been very good in he's he's been very good at 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 moving himself up the ladder. Uh, he's not been terribly good in performing the jobs once he's climbed up the ladder to the next level. And uh, this goes from everything from his days of chief of staff to his tenure in Congress to his, I think the greatest thing he did for Halliburton was leave and, and, get, and get them uh, uh, some handsome contracts. Uh, and now as vice president, well, you know, we're in a, we're, he's the one who drove the whole effort to go into Iraq. Yeah. Uh, he has set the, uh, the tone and the policy of the in-your-face unilateral United States will go it alone. Uh, he and Don Rumsfeld, who was his mentor, uh, work hand in glove. And as I started to say, a lot of this has been confirmed by Colin Powell's former chief of staff, Wilkinson. Uh, Wilkinson, right? Yeah. Well, well I, I, uh, people forget how he became vice president. He was heading up the. He Bush. selected himself. <laughs> yeah, he selected himself to be vice president, and that I guess is his great gift is his ability to kind of, cre- well, in a way, create his own his own job, uh, and he did that with with certainly becoming vice president. Well, in, in, in early, you know. You've got a president who I don't think is stupid. I think he's ignorant, and he's ignorant yeah. by design. He doesn't yeah. have an interest in a lot of these things that Cheney is very interested in. Cheney's a, a, a policy wonk. Uh, George Bush is a salesman. Uh, and, one, and, you know, he, one of the very great similarities between Nixon and Bush is they're men who really don't seem particularly comfortable in the job of being president. Yeah. Nixon, uh, who learned about the presidency from Dwight Eisenhower, kind of a father figure, and George Bush, who learned about the presidency from, from his father, yeah. uh, don't seem to feel they quite fill the shoes the way they learned about the job. And so they spend as little time in the physical Oval Office as possible. Nixon used to go down to, uh, to Florida, to his, his home there, or out here in California, to San Clemente. Uh, George Bush has run a continuous road show. Uh, it worked great for the first term because they kept the perpetual campaign going, and now he's out there selling policies, and he's really not getting covered as much as he used to because it's become such a standard procedure. And meanwhile, you got Dick Cheney back there running the store. Yeah. Now, you mentioned uh, Bob Woodward just a little bit ago. Uh, he said recently that we shouldn't count Dick Cheney out as a Republican nominee for 2008. Do you think that's crazy, or do you think there's a possibility that Cheney would run? Well, I, you know, anything is possible. Uh, I, who, who could discount it? Cheney's always said that he doesn't want to run. Uh, but I, I think particularly after the hunting accident, uh, Cheney is really damaged goods. Uh, I, well, I just keep looking at the administration, seeing Cheney in power, and wonder who they're going to pass the torch along to. And uh, I can't come up with anybody well, who's this yeah. quite as quite as connected or is in the position that Cheney is. Well, I think you know, you know, I think it, it will be something of a free for all in the Republican primaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, McCain is out there sniffing around. You've got uh, Romney out of Massachusetts, out you know, who's making moves. You've got a lot of Bill Frist thinks he's presidential timber. Uh, a lot of people want the job, uh, and I don't think at this point Bush would. Uh, cut Cheney loose, or they would try some sort of baton pass where Cheney says, well, the heart's really giving out on me. I've got to step aside. I'll just be sort of a senior counselor. You need a new vice president. And so you'd have an incumbent vice president, in essence, yeah. running uh, for, for uh, 
well, president. I'll tell you the one that frightens me is this uh, Sam Brownback from Kansas. He's uh, he's been touted in, as the uh, the Christian right candidate, uh, but uh, I, w- I want to go back a little bit. There are plenty of them that are frightening. <laughs> yeah, well, there are. That's true. I'm going to go back because in your book, Worse Than Watergate. By the way, we're speaking. And my roots are all Republican. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have we've had a few people on who uh, uh, Larry Diamond was on here. He talked about uh, squandered victory in Iraq and Republicans who. In, in who are obvi- so many backing people, away. Yeah, yeah, backing away, but just across the board. I think people of, uh, who are taking any time to look at this situation have got to be horrified. And we haven't even touched on Iraq and the just debacle that's become. Um, but I, by the way, we're speaking with John Dean, the author of Worse Than Watergate The Secret Presidency of George W. Bush. Um, the hidden agenda, I just kind of want to get back a little bit back of, about the book and, and about what you see as. Can I just interject here? I'm gonna I'm gonna host prerogative. It seems to me that these guys have just declared a fire sale on American assets and are are, are selling anything that's not da- nailed down that the federal government has any control over. I see that as part of the agenda. I don't think you're wrong. Uh, you know that that's long been sort of a Republican uh, mantra to to turn first of a lot of government business over to the private sector to to run. Halliburton, as I say, has never had more business uh, than they do now with <coughs> because of Iraq and, and, and the goodwill of having the vice president, their former uh, chairman of the board. You've got uh, billions being poured out in, uh, in contracts. Uh, yeah. and, and, you know, what, what true conservatives are, are, have noticed this, and they find that the, their government, that they've helped bloat is uh, this helps explain what's happening with the uh, scandal with Abrahoff yeah. uh, and uh, you know the fact that lobbyists are now spend so much of their time trying to get earmarked special legislation uh, that helps their their cause their industry their corporation whatever they happen to be lobbying for and these are how the paybacks this is the quid pro quo we'll give you campaign money you give us what we need, and we're talking really serious money. Yeah. And yes, some of it is selling off properties, sell, you know, national forests, uh, uh, outsourcing work. Uh, yeah. You know, we've never had. Poor the state of Michigan uh, is has lost something like three hundred thousand jobs in the five plus years that Bush has been in office. It's staggering. Yeah, the, the, this administration talks about how many. I think they tout a million or two million new jobs since he took office. But based on the economic model that I saw, we have actually net loss with the amount of people that we've gained in the country. We've lost something like 10 or 15 million. Some, I mean, it was a staggering amount, like 10 to 15 million jobs that should have been a, a, a part of this economy that haven't been in the last six and a half, six years. Yeah, it's the only, the only person who really stays on this issue constantly is Lou Dobbs. Okay, yeah. Okay, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, well, I, I w- also, in, in the same vein as this sort of selling off uh, uh, federal assets, I also ha- see a trend, a disturbing trend. We've done, we've had some people on to talk about the U.S. military and the outsourcing of uh, to Halliburton and some of these other bigger um, uh, firms. For I, I, what I see is a sort of insidious trend to outsource the military. I'm not just talking about the services attached to the military. Increasingly, we're seeing paid. Outside the outside the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, paid people doing the actual fighting. 
Mercenaries. And mercenaries. Thank you. I, was, I couldn't <laughs> think of that. I was going to say Hessians, but yeah. that, I didn't want to say Hessians. But anyway, yeah, we're seeing that. And to me, that goes to the very core of what government and its most basic is, is, is an accountable government should be ha, should have in place an accountable military. But, in fact, we don't. You've, you've made me recall a, 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 some material from Machiavelli's The Prince, who advises the the young prince to never rely on mercenaries because when as he looked back up to the 16th century uh, he had never seen a successful monarch who had relied on mercenaries as being the worst type of soldier to ever hire we know that they certainly didn't manage uh, very well the american revolution <laughs> yeah, yeah. but Thank, um, thankfully uh, <laughs> thank, thankfully right uh, <laughs> Uh, you're right. It's a, it, it's it's staggering. Uh, again, this outsourcing and using the private sector uh, to do every conceivable job in in government. And uh, it, it, it yes, government has its inefficiencies, but there is some there is some actual merit to a bureaucracy uh, that doesn't ha- it isn't driven by a, a bottom line. Well, it, it's it, accountability. Isn't it's that accountability. What it is? It's also uh, it, it's it's terribly process oriented. Yeah. But uh, because bureaucrats are not bold, they're not uh, inclined to go beyond the limits of what they think the description of their job is. Uh, so you tend to stay more on the tracks when you have people who are professional bureaucrats running things than you do when you have things that are outsourced. Yeah, and this folds back into what you were saying. I mean, the, the, the return on investment, Halliburton gives so, you know, $10,000, $20,000, to a candidate who turns around and makes sure that they get a contract for hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. That is the best use of corporate money that, that's, that you can think of, isn't it? It was a wonderful return on their investment. <laughs> yeah, so... so um, and I don't think Cheney's ever ever gotten rid of his uh, options. No, not, no, they're in a blind trust, my, my understanding. And by the way, going back to the port deal, I heard yesterday, again, these things are floating around. I have no idea what's going to turn out to be verifiable. But that Jon Snow had had a trust. Uh, he was, Jon Snow was the Secretary of uh, the Treasury, and he apparently has a vested interest of something in a portfolio near $100 million dollars uh, invested in these companies, the the old port company, I believe he's invested in. Um, so there's money floating around there, and I understand the Carlyle Group might actually be in, have a vested interest in this. Now, well, none, none of that would surprise me, and I don't think it would surprise anybody because yeah. it's the way. Pretty much, uh, uh, it's pretty much a defining distinction between Republicans and Democrats. Republicans remarkably come into government and then leave and make even more money. Democrats, who who are more public service oriented, typically go off to universities. They go into think tanks. Uh, they don't go into the corporate world to see how much more money they can make. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a very curious. If you look at former White House House staffs uh, of Republicans versus Democrats, you'll see you see it very clearly. Yeah. You think that's just their their ideology, or is it just, or is it uh, their uh, how do you say that? A fraternity, yeah. sorts, isn't it? Well, I, I think mean, I think that they go into government for different reasons. Yeah. I think that uh, the Democrats tend to be driven into or, or to be attracted to public service uh, because of their desire to help other people. Uh, I think Republicans 
who tend to be more authoritarian are attracted to this because of the power yeah. uh, and the potential rewards that come from doing it. Uh, we're speaking with John Dean, author of Worse Than Watergate. We've just got a couple more minutes here, and I want to kind of wrap this up with a little bow. Worse Than Watergate, well, we know what happened to Richard Nixon as a result of the Watergate uh, investigation. Uh, it's not going to happen now with the Republican Congress, but let's say in 2006 we get um, 20 seats flip in the House and we get six seats flip in the Senate. Do you see him being impeached, or do you, th- do you think he's committed impeachable crimes? I, I think I know the well, answer. I don't but, think there's any question yeah. he has committed impeachable crimes, but you've got to remember that impeachable crimes are defined by the House of Representatives itself. Uh, It's an impeachable crime to lie about having sex uh, Mm -hmm. uh, in the the room off the Oval Office. (laughs) Not the Oval Office. Uh, At least was that discreet. They they worked their way in there. (laughs) At some point. Uh, But uh, uh, that that typically wouldn't hit one on the radar as being a high crime or misdemeanor. Uh, typically, the, we assume the founders had in mind somebody who was hurting the country uh, and not necessarily messing up his marriage uh, yeah. as being the criteria. But uh, so there's a, there's why, and there's just no question in my mind that Bush uh, has committed impeachable offenses. I have laid uh, one out in particular: his his misrepresentations to Congress about Iraq in worse than Watergate. I so. Yeah. Uh, looked at history and, and, but, uh, and, and pulled it all together. But you can also say the same with his defiance of the uh, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Mm-hmm. Uh, clearly, the Congress in 78 said this is the way it's going to be done. Uh, they repealed the existing laws that, uh, that did recognize warrantless wiretapping by the executive. Uh, and it's a real, I mean, it's just a brutal uh, stretch of, of you couldn't pass a bar examination with the kind of legal opinions that are being issued to justify this action. Uh, so he's in trouble there. Yeah. And I think that 2006 November midterm election is going to be a very defining election, not necessarily in terms of impeachment, but whether we're going to have a Congress that holds the presidency accountable. People are beginning to understand a divided government where you have different parties at each end of Pennsylvania Avenue is probably a better thing and a safer thing than having one party rule. Yeah. But we had James Bamford on the program last week, and he described, uh, in his opinion, uh, there were 5,000 wireless wiretaps that he knew of. He's saying that's that's a that's 5, an impeachment. Yeah. Times an impeachable offenses, and he was very clear that that's what he believed the president had partici- was guilty of. And uh, I think you're, you're saying the same thing in, in, uh, about different things also besides just the wire, the wiretapping. Well, Absolutely. Ju- yes. Well, um, I unfortunately, because there is just that we could go on for quite some time here. Um, we've been speaking with John Dean. And the book is Worse Than Watergate. It, it's in a new um, paperback edition. We're looking for more chapters in the next couple of <laughs> couple of months. <laughs> well, I actually just finished. I just finished another book. Oh, so it'll be out uh, oh, this summer. Uh, it's called. The title uh, is is Conservatives Without Conscience. Oh, terrific! Okay. Perfect. Uh, I don't think it's going to get me an invitation to the American <laughs> Conservative Union yeah. to uh, launch the book. Well. Well, I'll tell you what, there are a lot of conservatives. I look back on Barry Goldwater as being a principled conservative, and I think that uh, he would embrace what you're doing. So. Well, that's the curious thing. This book, the senator and I started together. Oh. He's a longtime friend, oh. and um, 
we obviously had a play on on words when we picked the title. We started in '94. Then his health turned bad. Yeah. I put the book on the shelf. Yeah. Uh, I would still call myself on many issues a Goldwater conservative. Yeah. Uh, and he unfortunately shuffled off with great concern about what had happened to conservatism. Well, and, and I applauded his, his. I remember his last few years when he was he he was uh, he had the courage of his convictions. So uh, that's great. Um, good luck on the book. Once again, thank you, John Dean, for being uh, on Weekly Signals. My pleasure. Good luck to you guys. Thank you. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. And this is Weekly Signals.